Well, I know most of you know me well enough to know that I have spent my life working in the, mostly in the arena of music, particularly Christian music and primarily church music. I'm what some people would call a lifelong church musician. I started off when I was very, very young, raised in the home of a pastor with a father who played the piano very well, mother who played the piano and the organ very, very well. And so there really wasn't any choice in our house. You were going to play the piano. That's just the way it was. How many were raised in a home like that? Some of you were. So that's what we did. My sister played. Everybody, it's just what you did in our house is you played the piano. And I started very, very, very young. And I remember my mother being in our home and deciding she wanted to spend a few minutes at the old, upright, clunky, brown, scratched-up piano that we had in our home. But the only problem was she wanted to sit down and just worship the Lord a little bit playing the piano, but the problem was there was nobody else to watch me, and she had this little feisty, really hyperactive kid in the house that she had to do something with so that she could sit down and play the piano. So what she would do is she would just take me and plop me on the bench next to her, and that's where I had to sit while she played the church hymns and choruses. And to this day, I can remember the very first song I ever played. I can remember it as clear as if, as if it were yesterday. And I'm sure it's because it was something my mother was playing, and I'd heard it even at that young age at church many, many times. And at first, I just, you know, being a little kid, I probably just sat and banged on the keys. And I remember the day when I banged out this first little melody. You want to hear it? Okay, it went something like this. Something like this. Oops. took me a while to find that one. Anybody know this song yet? Well, I did play it all the way through the melody, and my mother looked at me like, what are you doing? So I played the melody, and then I'll never forget the day she said, you need to put the left hand with it. So a few days or weeks later, it went sound like this. recognizes the song? Raise your hand. Well, over the years, I learned maybe a couple of fancier chords to put with it, but that little song, no matter how I play it, has an incredible message for us today, and that is what? Why don't you sing it if you know it? Sing it.
thinking about that song this week as I was preparing this message. And you know some of those early childhood memories get in your brain and they stay there. And that's one of those memories that for me is precious and sweet and wonderful because of it was really establishing for me a bedrock foundation that was important for me to know all through life. Last week we looked at John chapter 8 where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness. And the big reminder in that statement is that the light of the world is on the move. And if we're going to be followers of his, we have to keep up. Otherwise, if we don't stay up with the light, we're going to be the ones left in darkness. The I am statements of Jesus are found in the Gospel of John, and we mentioned them last week. Each one of the I am's represents a particular relationship of Jesus to the spiritual needs of men and women. However, even as Jesus communicated these I am statements, the people tended to respond with what we could call crude literalism. Crude literalism or an an inability to see with spiritual eyes, only with physical eyes. We have plenty of examples of that. One is Nicodemus. When Jesus said, you must be born again, the response of crude literalism from Nicodemus was, how how can I enter again into my mother's womb? He was taking it from a crudely literal position. Jesus was speaking to him in spiritual terms, not in physical terms. Crude literalism is one of the enemies of the gospel. The inability to see with spiritual eyes. Another example is the woman at the well. Jesus said, I can give you water that will refresh you forever. And her crude literalist response was, okay, give that to me and that will save me from having to come here over and over again. Well, she didn't didn't understand what he was saying. So let's look at these I am claims of Jesus. He said he's the light in the darkness. He's the gate to security. He's the shepherd that guides. He's the way, the truth and the life. And in every one of these statements, if you look at them, we see that Jesus wants us to receive him not for the gifts that he can give us, but for what he can be to us. And there's a dramatic difference. So this morning, the time that I have here, I'm going to put a spotlight or attempt to put a spotlight on another one of those I am statements of Jesus. Right after the feeding of the 5,000 is when Jesus actually made the first of the recorded I am statements. He was at the apex of his popularity. It was, uh, he was enjoying great popularity at this time. In fact, the crowds wanted to take him by force if necessary and make him their king. Now, there's a lot of interest in detail in this passage that I'm going to go to in just a few minutes in John chapter 6 if you want to turn there. It's a lot of interest and detail to the narrative that I invite you to go home and read in its detail this afternoon. I won't, time doesn't permit me to cover all of the passage. I'm pulling things from the passage today, John chapter 6. Trust me, if you go home and read that, it'll be better than the Super Bowl. I promise it will be. But because of the popularity of Jesus at this point, he crossed the lake to get away from their demands. But the next day, when they figured out where he was, the growing crowd commandeered boats, and they followed him across the lake. 
They thought they had their eye on him when he was there with them and that if they didn't see how he possibly could have snuck away, but he did. So when they got to the other side of the lake, you'll find out when you read it this afternoon that their first question was, how did you get here? How did you get over here? Well, he could have said, I just walked across the water. He didn't say that. He could have said that. But what he did tell that record-breaking crowd was this. He said in John 6, verse 35, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, the Greek tells us that there is great emphasis on this word never. Will never be hungry again and will never be thirsty. Now, he had fed them the day before with the feeding of the 5,000, the loaves and the fishes, and so now they'd come back for breakfast. They wanted something the next day. So because of their propensity toward crude literalism, John chapter 6 tells us that they grumbled, they mumbled, they argued, they whined. They grumbled, they mumbled, they argued, they whined. Because you understand, church was much different back then than it is today. And I'm sure it had something to do with the music, I'm sure. (laughs) They grumbled, they mumbled, they argued, they whined, and ultimately they left. And when they left, they left in droves. The text gives us some clues as to the kind of people that left Jesus behind when he preached this bread of life sermon. And that's what I want to look at this morning for just a few minutes. We'll look at either three or four, depending on how time goes here. The kinds of folks that left Jesus when he preached this sermon, when he was speaking in spiritual terms, I am the bread of life. For one thing, the first group we're going to look at is the materialists. The materialist folks just couldn't take it when Jesus shifted from physical food to spiritual talk. Many of the people who followed Jesus at this point, they were really hoping for a a political savior. They wanted political solutions and free handouts and, and material goodies because for them, Jesus had become the latest and greatest gravy train. And that's what they wanted. They wanted all the goodies. These people had watched Rome have limited success by instituting a a sort of of welfare program that was called a bread for peace that Rome had instituted at this time. There were many hungry and homeless, uh, jobless people in Rome, and so the government tried, and in their effort to try to avoid riots, uh, they were buying them off with goodies. But the plan backfired because the need was so great they couldn't, the government couldn't possibly keep up with it all, so it backfired. Well, Jesus knew that he potentially faced a similar situation the day after he had fed the masses with just five loaves and two fish. In fact, when the crowd arrived and found him on the other side of the lake, look at how he greeted them. He said, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. That's all, you just came for the food. Now, on a very, very, very minor scale, I understand exactly how how Jesus felt. We have a dog and a cat at our house. We have the cat because a few years ago, some precious person from the church here found a stray little kitten here in the church area, and they thought it would be wonderful to bring it to us. So we have a cat. The cat has since had a litter of kittens in my office at the house. 
we primarily, I primarily try to make sure that she remains an outside cat. She comes in every once in a while. So we were feeding her in the garage. We put her, her food out there. Now, because Becky wants her to be fed nutritiously, we have, we have a little bowl of the canned food, but then she thinks she also needs some of the dry food. So we have one of those cylinder things, <coughs> you know what I'm talking about? That you fill up, and that you, know, you don't have to fill it up every day, but it's about this big, and you put all the dry food in, and little by little it comes out the bottom, and okay, you get it. <clears throat> well, I began noticing that this cat was going through a whole cylinder every day. <laughs> I thought, there's no way that that cat is doing that. And then one day, we had the food out in the garage. One day, I opened from the house door into the garage, and I saw not just our cat, I saw a whole convention of cats. <laughs> it was a cat convention taking place in our garage. And that began to explain to me why we had this problem and why our cat food bill was getting really out of control. It was going crazy. Well, it, it got a little worse than that. <clears throat> we were not only feeding the neighborhood, but what happened is one day Shaler opened the door from the house and stepped out and looked right where the cat food was, and there was a black and white skunk. <laughs> he screamed like a third grade girl. So, of course, it was dad's job to take care of this problem, right? So dad steps in and does what any authoritative father who takes care of situations. I called animal control and said, come and get this thing. <laughs> of course, they said, we don't do skunks. I said, you don't do skunks? What do you mean you don't do skunks? They said, we don't, you know, they said, stop feeding it. I thought, well, that makes sense. So, in my ingenious way, we took the food from the garage, and we have a back porch with a table on it. So I thought, okay, at least I'll have it out of the garage once the skunks seem to have left. We take the food now, and we put it on the table on, in the back table of the porch, which worked well until one night I'm letting the dog out, and I see that on top of the table was a large possum eating the cat food. And I tried to shoo away the possum. Shoo, possum, shoo, shoo. And it was fine, except that on its way out, it plopped a baby possum right on our back porch as it left. Oh, what do you mean? Are you, you think that's cute? Have you seen a baby possum? They're not cute. Do you think those animals appreciated us? Do you think they have any sense of loyalty in return for our generosity? No. When the food was gone, they were gone. Missionaries in the third world countries often talk about rice Christians. These are people who will quickly convert to Christianity in exchange for food or some other physical benefit. But the problem with rice Christians is that when the goodies are gone, so are they. Is that any different than we are in America? Is that any different? I don't think we're so different. There are people that I know and probably people that you know, who attend church for business contacts. I have had somebody look me straight in the eye and say, I attend such and such a church. I found some great business contacts there. Or for community status, or for whatever. Unfortunately, rice Christians can be found all over the world because these people are there for what they can get. And they are quick to turn their back on God the first time that he fails to deliver. 
So Jesus told the crowd, remember we're talking about materialists here. He said, so don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given the seal of his approval. The materialists turned away from his message, but they weren't the only ones. There was another group I want to tell you about, and that's the legalists. They turned away also that day. Their reply to Jesus was, well, we want to perform God's works too. So tell us what we should do. What should we do? If these people couldn't get a free lunch, at least they wanted a list of rules that they could hang on to. I don't know about you, but I I never cease to be amazed that religion by its very nature draws some people who are actually looking for a dominating charismatic leader to call the shots and take over their lives. We've seen example after example of this in our lifetime. There's like a new cult group on every corner these days led by a control freak who turns his followers into some sort of Stepford Christians almost. Throughout Christian history, the church has often fallen into the sin of legalism. It's something that has to be fought over and over because it's easier to make rules for many people, particularly the rule keepers. It's easier to make rules than it is to build a relationship. Hello. That's easier to do. Here's the rules. Do, 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 do. Don't, 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 don't. How many of you grew up with lots of do's and don'ts? I did. But the interesting part of it, is all of that flies in the face of what Jesus really wants. He wants to build a relationship in the heart of every believer. That's why he has, he has sent his spirit to write his law on our hearts. He calls every one of us to study the word for ourselves and to learn from him. When we do that, the, the church enjoys amazing unity in, in morals and in principles. That's why you won't find Bethesda Church having a list of do's and don'ts. I signed my CA card years and years ago, and a few of you will understand that. On that card said, I won't, lots of things I wouldn't do. I won't chew and smoke and go with girls that do, whatever it all, all that was. We literally signed a card that said we wouldn't do those things. Does anybody else sign that card? A few of you did. Well, you won't find a card like that here at Bethesda. You'll find the holy word of God, and that's where we take our information from. That's the guide for our lives. And the church said amen. But some people simply don't want a deep relationship with the Lord. They'd rather find a strong leader and memorize a set of rules. Jesus had no interest in these kinds of followers because he came to build relationship, not rules. And when the crowd demanded a list of works, what can we do? Where's our list of rules? Because I'm good with rules. I know how to keep the rules. I'm good with that. Where's my list? His answer was this. This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. That's it. There's your list of rules right there. Believe in the one he has sent. And as amazing as it sounds, Jesus is looking for that kind of love relationship with every one of us. Isn't that amazing? That kind of relationship cannot be bought with goodies. And it cannot be built on rules. The materialists wanted the goodies more than they wanted God. The legalists wanted the law, but not the giver of the law. They rejected Jesus as a replacement for the rule-keeping religion of that day. But there's another group that walked out on Jesus that day. They were the sensationalists. Sensationalists. These people asked Jesus what I consider to be an absolutely absurd question. They said, show us a miraculous sign 
if you want us to believe in you? What can you do? Show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. Now, they thought that God's order was to see and believe. And unfortunately, that still prevails with many of us today. But I want to help you see that there's a different divine order. Many people, particularly you people who grew up in Missouri, the show me state, show me first what you can do. Let me examine it. Let me see if I like it. Let me see if it's going to work for me. And if I look at it, if I like it, if I examine it, and it turns out to be, looks like it's going to be good, then I'll believe. But church, I'm here to propose to you this morning, that is not the divine order. The divine order is first you believe and then you see the glory of God. That's the divine order. And that's a challenge to all of us. It's a challenge to me. It, it flies against my nature to say that I first believe and then I see. For some of you, that's true for your healing today. You have a tendency to say, Lord, I, I believe you'll heal me, but I'll really believe it when I begin to feel better or when I begin to see signs of improvement in my body. But I'm here to tell you the divine order is this, and this is a major challenge to all of us on all kinds of levels. First you believe. First you accept the bread of life. First you recognize that he is all that you need. First you realize he is enough, and then you will see what God can do. You believe first. That's the first thing you do. When you come to salvation, and many of you, some of you in this room today, You've not come fully to that place of salvation with the Lord Jesus. You're waiting to see, uh, you're going to be a seeker. You want to see if it's going to work for you. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't work like that, my friend. First, you believe. You recognize that's the Lord Jesus. I will accept him. I will believe him. And then I will see the glory of God. Then I will see what he can do. I need somebody to understand that today. So the sensationalist said, Show us a miraculous sign. Have you noticed this happened the day after he fed the 5,000? The day after with the loaves and fish? They need to see a miraculous sign. So after all, they said, show us a sign. After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. They were comparing what he had done to what Moses had done. And they said, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know what Jesus said? He said, Moses didn't give you that bread. My father did. You thought it came from someplace else. It was my Father who gave you that bread. It was my Father who provided the manna from heaven. We better be make sure we're looking to the right place and giving the right credit for where it goes. And it all comes from him anyway. My Father. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from the world and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied. Here's where he said it again. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Church, he is enough. He's our sustenance. He's our strength. He's everything that we have need of. He is enough. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Obviously, that miracle of feeding the 5,000 gave them enough faith to climb in the boats and to cross all the way to find Jesus. But yesterday's miracle was not enough to last to the next morning for the sensationalists. And we have plenty of churchgoers in America like that today. I call them pep rally believers. Pep rally believers. Keep them wowed, they'll stay with you. You bore them, and they're gone. Because they crave spiritual excitement. They love spectacular entertainment. They want new experiences all the time. They want Jesus to take them from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop with no valley in between. Hello. They want all kinds of rewards, but no responsibility. All the goodies, but no responsibility. It reminds me of a statement. I'm going to get in trouble for this. It reminds me of a quote attributed to Ronald Reagan. The nation had been mourning over his death. The news had been full of stories about his life. And one of the commentators remembered something that Reagan had said about babies. Appropriate morning here for us to talk about that. Ronald Reagan was talking about the alimentary canal of a baby. Are there any medical people who, could, who know what an alimentary canal is? It's the digestive system, okay, of a baby. And he said, a baby's alimentary canal is a lot like the American public, what Reagan said. It has an insatiable appetite at one end and a total lack of responsibility at the other. <laughs> Woohoo! Unfortunately, churches are filled with these kinds of people. Insatiable appetite for spiritual excitement, but total lack of responsibility toward the Lord himself, sadly. That's why so many people are fickle in the church, and they hop from church to church to church to church, looking for the latest seminar, the latest style, the most electrifying concert, the most exciting presentation, you know, that's clogged up with 40 days of this, 50 days adventure to that, seven habits of successful whatever, 21 irrefutable laws of yada, yada. It never ends. Now, I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying we need to focus, and there are times we need to focus on special emphasis. But Jesus did not come, folks, to give us endless spiritual highs. He came to give us a chance to know him. Can somebody say amen to that today? Look at the message Jesus gave to the materialists, the legalists, and the sensationalists of the day. Verse 33, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Who believes in me will never be thirsty again. And the response of the crowd tells us a lot about the difference between what people want and what they need. How many know so often the very thing that we want is the last thing we need? I know you're thinking about somebody else in your life right now when I say that. But look at the sad response of the crowd. Verse 41 of chapter 6 of John. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We, we know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? But when you think about it, the people who walked out on Jesus wanted what he could give to them in the same way a customer might demand service for pay. They were looking to Jesus to do business as if it was Jesus the soup kitchen, Jesus the cult leader, Jesus the miracle worker. 
Jesus, the bread of life, didn't resonate with them. It didn't play well for them. So what they do? They walked away. Turns out that even some of his closest disciples wanted Jesus only for what they could get out of him. They had no interest in a real relationship with God. And then we end up here at verse 66, which is such a sad indictment, where it says, at this point, many of his disciples turned and deserted him. He had disappointed them because he didn't give them what they thought they wanted. Now, there's an interesting, poignant moment here that I... I'm really glad is there. And that's this. Jesus, who was totally God, was also totally man. And he felt what any of us would feel. He experienced the pain of rejection, especially the rejection of those he had considered to be close friends. That ought to be a good reminder to all of us the next time you feel rejected by friends, even close friends. But they, don't, they just want you for what they can get out of you, and then they turn and walk away. Just know that Jesus knows exactly what that feels like, maybe, maybe in a way that we can't even comprehend. So then Jesus turned to his apostles, and with a question that must have been hard to ask, he says, so you want to leave too? You going to go too? He asked the 12. And of course, good old Peter, with his ability to stick his foot in his mouth, he spoke up for the group, and he basically said this, Lord, what other choice have we got? What, what, what else can, where can we go? What, 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 else, what else have we got left to do? But then what I love about this narrative right here is it's, is it's as if faith welled up inside of Peter. And he says, even as he's giving that response, it was an honest response. It was a real response. What, what else we got? Peter says, but you know what, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Notice again the sequence. We believe and know. Dear friend, hear this louder than anything else I say today. First we believe and then we know. First we believe and then we see. Say it with me. First I believe, and then I'll see. First I'll believe, and then. We trusted you first, and then we understood afterwards. Peter seemed to get it, what the crowds had missed that day. The apostles weren't there for all the good stuff that they could get. They were there because they believed and knew that Jesus was the Holy One of God, and that all that they really needed, he's all I need. All they really needed was Jesus himself. The difference was that the crowds who were there, they ate the loaves and fish because they thought, that that, that they, thought they could use him to fulfill their purposes. But the apostles who remained with him were saying to Jesus, you can use us for your purposes. Does that challenge you today? It challenges me. Why are you here? Why are you in this thing? Why are you in the church? Are you in for your purposes? Are you here for what you can get? I just want a blessing. Well, I hope you get one. Really, I mean, I mean that. If you come to church at Bethesda and you hear the music, you will get a blessing, in my opinion. You'll be blessed. But is that why we're here? Is it for our purposes? Or is it for his purposes? As I close in praying over this message today, I thought about you. Not as an individual, 
I never, ever target a message toward an individual, regardless what you may think. I've had people mad at me in the last two years. You were just preaching that to me. It really wasn't. It might have been the Holy Spirit. I want you to know I, would, I never would do that. I respect the sacred desk too much. I wouldn't do that. Plus, if you know me, if I need to talk to you, I'll be calling you. I'm surprised there's not some amens in the room. Not afraid to call if there's something you and I need to talk about. But I thought about you. When I say that I thought about you, what I mean is I thought about the group of people who would be here this morning responding to this message and listening to this and who would say, you know, I don't know that I'm a materialist. I don't really think I'm a legalist. And I, no, I, I don't think I consider myself a sensationalist. I don't feel like I fit in any one of those specific categories. You're just a person who really loves the Lord but you're going through a horrific storm or battle in life. And you need him. And you're tempted to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm here to remind you this morning that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he who follows after me will never be hungry and never be thirsty. And I'm also here to remind you that no matter what you're facing this morning. No, did you hear me say no matter what? No matter what. No matter what. No matter what. No matter what. Whatever way you need to hear it from me. No matter what you're facing. The truth is, it all goes back to that little song I learned as a three-year-old kid. He's all you need. If you end up with nothing else, every friend forsakes you, your bank account goes to zero, everything else goes away, he's all you need because he's the bread of life. Is anybody hear me this morning? Then bless the Lord for that. He didn't say you'll never go through a storm. He didn't say life would always be easy. He simply said that he's enough. That's what he was trying to tell the crowd that day. I'm the bread of life. And he who follows me will never hunger and never thirst again. That's what he meant by that. You know, we teach our children in Sunday school the little song that says... The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the foolish man built his house upon the... And we sing that, and our focus is on the wise guy and the foolish guy, right? We try to explain the difference. And yes, all of that is true from, from Jesus' words in Matthew 7. The part we don't emphasize so much in that song is that the storm came on both of them. The rains came down, and the floods came up. On both of them, both of them experienced it. The difference is, one was experiencing Jesus as the bread of life. The one who was more than enough to take him through that storm. So that he would still be standing when it was over with. That's the difference. You know, in talking with some Christians today, 
the way they've approached their Christianity, the ones who've come to Jesus for what they think they can get out of him, it's almost as if they believe more in karma than they do in a sovereign God of the universe who will sometimes send difficulties your way for your own good to accomplish his purposes in you. Whether consciously or subconsciously, many Christians tend to act like this. If I do good, and if I do all the things he says, then God owes me. He owes you nothing. And you owe him everything. And here's the reality. If you hang around, you keep breathing, you're going to bleed. But God has a purpose in that. And in that purpose is where you're supposed to discover he's all you need. Colossians 1 says it this way. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. He's the top, nothing above him, nothing else to gain, nothing else to get. He's the goal, the end. What it's all about is Jesus. Listen to me carefully. And I say this with a pastor's heart. Following Jesus is not necessarily going to make you wealthy. Following Jesus does not guarantee that every day of your life you're going to be healthy. The message of Scripture and the gospel of Christ is not that in following him, everything always goes the way you want it every day. But the message, rather, is that no matter what happens, he is enough. That's the message of the gospel. Not not that everything's going to always be every day the way you want it. Every apostle in the Bible dies a horrible death. They get beheaded. They get crucified upside down, boiled in oil. They die poor. They're slaughtered. Spurgeon, considered the prince of preachers, struggled his whole life with depression, and then he dies. Christianity has been built and has been carried on through the generations, not by people of of wealth, but by the blood of man. It's an, this is an absurd idea to think that it's carried on by wealth and goodies and all that. That's an absurd idea that would not make Christ preeminent, but it would be based upon what he can give you, and that is not Christianity. That's something entirely different, which would have gotten you burned alive 200 years ago. Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's enough. He's enough. We pursue, we pursue healing, and I believe he still is and always be the God who heals. I spend a big part of my week every week praying and believing for God to heal people. We pursue healing, but whether he heals you or whether he doesn't, he's enough, church. Our Christianity is not about what Jesus gets you. It's about Jesus, the one who is preeminent, who is top of the chain. Nothing else to want, nothing else to pursue, nothing else to gain. He is enough. He's all I need. Stand with me, please.